0: Welcome back to the Cost of Caring podcast, where we talk about the mental, relational, physical, and financial costs of caregiving. Cost of Caring is presented by Givers, a savings and support platform that automates access to benefits programs and reimbursements for families who want to save money on caregiving. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Today we're talking to Jess Quinlan, who is a licensed social worker and has been in practice for over eight years. She is also a therapist at Cerebral, where they offer expert online therapy and mental health care. And today on the podcast, we're talking about how to manage feelings like resentment and anger as an unpaid family caregiver.
1: I'm Jess Quinlan. Um, I'm an independently licensed supervising social worker. The short version is I'm a therapist. Um, I am currently employed with Cerebral as a clinical manager, um, but I've been in direct clinical work for about the past 10 years in a variety of settings. So, doing therapist things.
0: That's awesome. How did you, um, if you don't mind sharing, like, how did you get interested in this
1: career path and, you know, head this direction with your life? Yeah, it was a little bit of a windy road. Uh, I started off in art and graphic art and I had a scholarship to go to art school. And so started that and then was sort of like, maybe not a career, maybe something I really love, but maybe not my career choice. And um, winded my way around into criminal justice and then sort of found a niche in social work from that piece of criminal justice that I really liked. And uh, got into social work and the the clinical side of things I've just really enjoyed. So
0: that's awesome. I love I love <laughs> the stories and how they've ended up where they are on, you know, yep. what seemed probably at the time like a meandering path, maybe. But um as a social worker now and at your job at Cerebral, you know, what I guess what do you like most about what you do?
1: I love working with clients and helping people fill in the gaps especially when it comes to the inherent nature of being a human being. Um, I think about when we go to school and we know that we need to learn math and we need to learn the history and we need to know sciencey things. And But there's a big gap in how about relationships and how about communication and how about managing your emotions and how you feel. Um, there's no class for that. So I love being able to provide some of that for folks when they come looking for it and be able to help um identify and process some of those things and help folks kind of mend mend on their way so yeah
0: i love that and i think that leads nicely into what we're talking about which is you mm-hmm. know how to manage anger and resentment as a caregiver which um i know as a former caregiver and and from everyone i talk to you know it's kind of this like yucky feeling um so maybe just more broadly can we talk a little bit about like what causes anger and resentment and what's the difference between those two words those two emotions mm-hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Broadly speaking, anger is a very innate emotion that no one has to teach us us how to feel if you think about it. Babies get angry. Um, Nobody teaches them how to do it. Um, It's just something we know how to feel along with like joy and sadness. Um, Anger and resentment are feelings like any other emotions and they come up. Um, What we know about anger um, is it's sort of defined, or we can look at the definition of anger as an emotion that we feel when something gets in the way of a desired outcome, or when we believe there's a violation of the way things should be. And I stole that little snippet from Brené Brown in Atlas of the Heart, because I thought she explained it very well. Resentment, on the other hand, when we think about resentment, I'm assuming we typically believe that resentment and anger are very closely related, right? think about the two and think they go together. Um, Resentment is actually not a function of anger. Resentment is actually a function of envy, right? So when we think about it this way, um, the idea that maybe if I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I'm overwhelmed and someone is taking a nap and I start to feel resentful of, cool, glad you get to lay down because I'm exhausted. And we start to feel those feelings of resentment. I wish you would just help me or or do your part. And the idea here is um, my lack of rest and my envy of your rest is what's causing that resentment. So I think knowing that helps us really start to dig down into some of the sources of where some of that envy can come from. When we're looking at kind of flipping back to anger, um, there's a model of looking at anger. Some people uh, talk about it as the iceberg or a pyramid for anger, where anger is sort of at the top. There's a lot of other things underneath it and it starts with a perceived threat to something that you care about. So it can be a person, it can be my competence, it can be my safety, love, um, a number of things, food, resources, um, and when that perceived threat occurs in whatever form, and it can be real or perceived, um, we have this initial emotion then that comes up that can be shame, anxiety, fear, humiliation, and anger is the kind of the emotion that comes on top of that, that we we start to feel that protects um, what's going on. And then anger can be a catalyst for that change, um, if that makes sense. So we have that perceived threat and anger is what helps us kind of protect and push through and make the changes that we that we would desire. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Questions or does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, I thought or... that was great. I, I
0: just typed myself a question. That I was going to say, you know, why do we yeah. why do we group anger and resentment together? But you you know just sort of started to touch on that. So. Um, Mm. because I think it's, I hear questions all the time, I feel, or statements, I I feel angry and resentful together, Mm -hmm. like they often come together, but you just started to talk about that. So I think that's, that's helpful. I don't know if you have anything else to add about, you know, why they get grouped together.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think because the expression looks similar, right? When we feel resentful, the expression and maybe how we interact with others or express how we're feeling, is very similar to how we behave when we're angry. Um, we don't always communicate in the best ways. Um, we have some, probably some similar physical feelings that come up. Um, I don't think they're far and away apart, um, but just knowing that the source of it is actually drawn from from an envy and not so much from um, a true perceived threat in any manner. This is how anger sort of manifests, so.
0: Yeah, I think that distinction is really interesting and helpful. Um, mm-hmm. I-, I imagine that, you know all all feelings are valid we say feel your feelings and all of this um but feelings like anger and resentment you know they're normal but why do they feel so bad um i don't know if you could talk on that a little bit just like Mm -hmm. why do these things feel so bad to have in our body or to experience
1: so when i look at emotions um There's a spectrum of all emotions, and I like to—I tend to use the terms comfortable and uncomfortable. There's some emotions that are comfortable for for us, and there's some emotions that are uncomfortable. Um, I tend to shy away towards positive and negative, um, but not that that's right or wrong. So we think about the discomfort that comes up for us when we feel anger or resentment. Um, That's because they fall on that end of the spectrum with some other uncomfortable emotions that exist for us generally as humans we have, again, an innate reaction to shy away from discomfort because it lends itself towards our survival, right? So I give an example of if you hurt your knee, your innate response to hurting your knee is to limp. You don't even have to think about it, it just happens. And limping helps reduce the pain of whatever's going on in our knee, right? Same thing with emotions. If I feel an emotion, I don't really have to think about it. I just tend to myself away towards, I don't really wanna feel that, I'm gonna ignore, I'm gonna detach, I'm going to. Um, I don't want to figure out what's going on there because it feels really uncomfortable. So it's a, it's a self, it's self-preservation in a way. The belief that something is wrong or something bad will happen if I am uncomfortable um, is not always true. And so to check that for the facts of, like you mentioned, why do I feel this resentment or what is causing the anger can actually be more effective and more helpful than saying I'm angry and I don't want to feel it. So I'm going to stuff it and just ignore it and go do something else. It's there for a reason. It's trying to give us information. Yeah,
0: I think um, that's that's interesting what you've just said. I think for a lot of caregivers, you know, you're caring for someone that you care about in, in most instances. Of course, this is all nuanced. So, you know, you feel guilty for feeling anger or resentment to mm-hmm. or because of, you know, the, your care recipient. The question feels kind of simple, but like, why are they so hard? to Why is it so hard to talk about these things, um, given what I just shared?
1: because of the innate nature of being uncomfortable. I don't know, and this is again just a broad statement, I don't know that maybe as a society or if you're in certain environments with certain people, it can be really safe to have these types of conversations. But sometimes if you're not on the same page with the individual you're expressing it to or people around you and that's not a common theme is to be open and be vulnerable and we're gonna be uncomfortable together and we'll figure it out and it's okay. that innate reaction is just this is uncomfortable let's not talk about it this food tastes bad i'm gonna spit it out i don't want to tolerate like that's just kind of that goes back to our i think basic survival instincts of if this isn't good then i don't want to deal with it anymore
0: yeah i think that's that's helpful and i I guess then if someone's like i don't know it's it's a flag like you mentioned kind of it's telling you something you're like i just kind of want to ignore it and pretend it's not there but i can only imagine that's going to spiral and make these things worse um and it's hard to talk about i guess how does someone like caregivers or otherwise, how does someone identify the source of these emotions? I think it's probably mm-hmm. you know it's probably, it's probably a surface level thing where you say like oh, it's because I have to take care of my mom, I feel mad about that. Um, but how do you identify like the real source of of your anger and or resentment? Mm-hmm.
1: I think um, kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of before I get to a place where maybe I realize these emotions are overwhelming me. Being able to notice that there's another way to deal with it and that I just have to have the tools and the knowledge that there's another way to go about it. So perhaps it is um, being in therapy and talking about what you feel, perhaps it is finding supports from their people and being able to have those vulnerable discussions, um, being maybe someone who's open to a little bit of introspection and taking some accountability maybe for what what you're feeling. Um, Because i think sometimes that's tough because there's a self-protection again in saying well it's because of these external factors i'm feeling this way so if those external factors would just change i wouldn't have to feel like this anymore but it completely takes us out of the game right um and so i think that's a great question sort of saying for myself then how do i recognize what's going on and i think being able to verbalize and externalize with a therapist or with other people in a support group i think can be really beneficial.
0: Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um my next question sort of follows up with that and i don't know maybe we can dig deeper or maybe we just leave it sort of at that. But um you know, if someone's looking to minimize or manage feelings of resentment or anger or even guilt um you know, in therapy or in support groups, or just, you know, a, a DIY method? Are there any tools people can use to to reduce these feelings or manage these feelings?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think self-awareness plays a really, really big role. Um, because again, if you can recognize what your tendencies are, like, do I tend to explode when I'm angry? Do I tend to stuff when I'm angry? Um, do I tend to sort of um, put a bandaid on the situation or maybe be passive aggressive, or do I like to confront and, and address what's going on? And in some ways we can do a combination of those things, right? It's not always wrapped up perfect and pretty with a bow. I think when we learn how to regulate negative emotions or I guess the uncomfortable emotions with identifying what's going on for us and kind of, as you mentioned, it can get a little bit nuanced because it's very individualized based on someone's experiences, temperament, things like that. If I have a desire to say, I know there's more going on here than than what it looks like on the surface, and I'm willing to kind of investigate a little bit. Um, doing some of that processing and healthy coping um, has been shown in the research to be much more effective um, versus the alternatives of chronic explosion or stuffing, what I call stuffing, or um, pushing it down, hiding. Does that answer your question, I you think?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And then okay. I, I'm hoping to sort of jump back a little bit. You mentioned obviously therapy as you know a way for mm-hmm. someone to to identify the source of this and and coping mechanisms. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what it might be like to be in therapy talking about something like this? Like how can a therapist help with a feeling like resentment?
1: So I think providing a a safe space where we can sort of process themes um, without feeling judgment, um, where maybe I can sort of, you know, throw something out there and have a sounding board and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. Um, but that it's okay to sort of come up with theories and come up with ideas and patterns. I think that's really important to sort of just get it all out there and sort of have someone help you organize things in a way that that makes sense for you. Um, again, learning those themes is really important. We all have some really um, solidified themes if we take a second to look at it that we can notice we look back, we're like, I keep going in loops here. With lots of things, I see lots of patterns. Um, Being able to identify those patterns will also help figure out what's going to be the best coping skill or what do I need to work on? What do I need to address? Figuring out and identifying what our learned behaviors are. Anger is definitely one of those emotions that um, we very, heavily learn to express based on what we've seen and what we've been taught. How did our parents, how did our caregivers and our loved ones express anger? And what have I seen? Well, if it's constant explosion, then I internalize from a very young age that when I feel angry, this is what I do. Um, So learning that you don't have to do it that way. You don't have to stuff. You don't have to explode. Um, There's some other options and maybe somewhere in the middle. And then again, continues to lend itself to just general coping and regulation alternatives when it comes to our... Um, emotions which I think a lot of that um, stems from this idea that if it's uncomfortable I have to get rid of it as soon as possible but learning that just because something is uncomfortable doesn't inherently make it bad or right or wrong it just is so being willing to tolerate a little bit investigate a little bit um, and regulate can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, I th- everything you just said was very eloquent. I think that's uh, useful, especially what you're saying about, you know, repeating themes, or repeating patterns, and then finding a hmm. the coping mechanism that, you know, best addresses what's specific to you. For people that have maybe tried therapy or never tried therapy or are curious about it or are looking for something to deal with these kind of emotions, how does someone determine the best kind of therapy for them? I think if you do a quick Google search, it shows you like, you know, 50 different types of therapy you could be doing. Um, how does someone narrow that down
1: i think really a a big part of it has to do with the individual that you are seeking therapy from so your therapist um you are not going to be the best match for every therapist and every therapist is not going to be the best match for you just as human beings and relationships work the same way it is okay if you start going to therapy and you don't believe your therapist is a good match for you i don't know if that's talked about enough um but it is okay. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your therapist, Um, but it's okay to say, Hey, I don't know if we're a good match. Can you help me maybe find someone who's a better fit? And maybe that's just personality wise or style wise, as far as like therapeutic approach, like uh, what is their evidence-based approach? I think there isn't necessarily a way to determine before getting into it, if it's going to be a good fit or not. Um, Obviously, there are certain approaches that fit certain topics, like there are certain approaches for trauma, there are certain approaches for depression, anxiety. So making sure whatever you've identified you're dealing with, that maybe you're you're at least seeking someone who has a specialty or a focus in that area, for sure. Um, but for some people, like CBT is very common, right? But sometimes I've worked with folks that they don't resonate well with CBT. Um, it feels too intellectualizing um, and they need maybe a a stronger focus on emotional literacy. So being able to shift as a therapist and have knowledge in a couple different areas can be really helpful. Um, And I think just having that direct communication with your therapist and being able to say, I am really getting a lot from this or I don't know if this is working. Um, I wanna focus more here, how do we do that? And just having that, that open line of communication to let them know what you need can be really helpful. Therapy in general, and this is something I tell my clients often, um, therapy in general should be uncomfortable to a certain degree. If you go into therapy feeling absolutely amazing and wonderful every single time with no level of discomfort, I would challenge the amount of work that you're actually doing in therapy it should be uncomfortable i usually give like the gym analogy if you go to the gym you should be a little sore after right that means you're doing something it means it's working of course i don't ever want to advocate that you should be extremely triggered and feel awful after therapy that's probably not a good sign either but if your therapist is able to i use the vague term of if i was able to poke you a little bit and kind of say you know metaphorically so and and tap into some things and help you explore some things and it it doesn't feel the greatest but you're able to recognize i really did need to talk about that or um i am willing to challenge myself to go that extra step and, and try something different and see what the result is i think that that that's a really good sign um that maybe your therapist is a good fit and, and what you're doing is a good fit
0: yeah um that's something i've actually experienced in in therapy myself is feeling like um like I'm not getting poked enough and and found, you know, other people that were better matches for me but it's mm-hmm. sort of a it took a while to like learn that that just not every therapist is the right therapist for me and vice versa. That said, I think what can maybe be overwhelming to people is like, you know, insurance is going to cover their therapy maybe, maybe they're paying out of pocket. So this like shopping around idea, I think can feel sort of overwhelming and expensive yeah. to people. Um, can you talk about like cost? efficient alternatives or solutions to therapy?
1: Well, I think um more and more with especially with the pandemic kind of pushing this idea of more accessible mental health care. So with the online platforms like Cerebro, whom I worked for, and um, there's lots of other platforms and options, um, makes it a little easier. You don't have to worry about the commute and the drive and and um, you can reschedule and there's a little bit more flexibility there. Um I think also just accessibility to more resources. There are lots of great, but also some not great. Um, like instagrams that are are um directed entirely on certain topics of, Um, Let's talk about trauma themes Um, and they're run by licensed professionals. Let's talk about family systems. Obviously proceed with caution there because anyone can throw up an Instagram account, but it can be really helpful that this is just becoming something that's more talked about. Um, I mentioned Brené Brown earlier and she has lots of really great accessible resources. through either an academic lens, if you wanna read one of her research papers or through video via Netflix and HBO, it's accessible. Um, She has books. So whatever outlet you'd prefer, um, there's lots of great resources there. And I think Brene Brown in general, she's someone that I look up to professionally um, and she's very accessible. She's very, I think, personable. Um, So it can be a good place to start because she talks about some of these tough things like, anger and the feelings we feel and how do we connect and how do we find joy and, and vulnerability. So um I think those are some some good alternatives um to your traditional model at times of of um going into the office and, and seeing the therapist sitting in the chair taking notes. Um it's evolved a little bit. So
0: yeah, I think that's super helpful. I'm excited about, you know, companies like Cerebral that are making mental health care more accessible um and in many ways more affordable because you don't have you know, the, the gas money now, or helping, you know, your therapist pay for their office space, like, um, it's more accessible to stay online. Um, I guess a follow up to that question is like, you mentioned that, you know, certain topics might benefit from a certain approach or certain type of therapy. I guess my question is twofold here. One is like, is there an approach that might be useful for people that are struggling with resentment and or anger? Um, And then I guess my second question is, if you're like looking for therapy, and you're not sure where to start, and you don't want to just like shoot in the dark looking for a therapist, where can someone go online? Maybe Renee Brown, maybe somewhere else. Where can someone go to like research types of therapy that might, you know, resonate or be attractive to them? That was a lot of questions Mm -hmm. at you all once. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I think um, a great place to start is CBT therapy stands for cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy really works on Um, connecting our thoughts and assumptions to our feelings and our behaviors, um, because there is a line that connects all those. You can even throw in physical feelings into that mix. And so when I get to a space in therapy where if I'm if I'm addressing this through a CBT lens, I can start to look at what is the narrative that's going on in my head. Um, Because a lot of times we don't think about it. We know there's like a narrative there, but we don't really point it out unless we're in therapy. No one talks about like the narrative per se um, in this context. So being able to recognize there's a narrative and being able to understand where my assumptions come from, what assumptions am I making, what am I telling myself about this situation. So what I'm telling myself about a particular event is going to determine how I behave and what I feel. Right. So if I'm able to notice, um, like, for example, when I wake up in the morning, what's the first thing I think if it's, oh, wow, you've already woken up 15 minutes late. Your whole day is ruined. That's going to impact the rest of my day and everything I do going forward. Um, I may start digging up. Well, yeah, because you can never do anything right because remember that one time you didn't make the basketball team in seventh grade and now this is just another thing, right? And we just start on that hamster wheel and that's going to impact how I feel and how I perform and what my affect is like. And um, versus if I wake up in the morning and I can notice that narrative, maybe I do have that initial thought of, oh, great, you've ruined it. You're 15 minutes late. You're going to miss your meeting. But then I'm able to say, okay, that's not accurate. I don't know what's going to happen. It's okay if you're late. People are late sometimes. you know, and then we can go into to a further narrative of what do I need to do from now on to make sure I'm, I'm awake on time in the future. Um, lots of different routes we can go there. I think specifically with anger and resentment, watching what those narratives are. Like when I say to myself, wow, I can't believe they're taking a nap and I'm left to do all this, or wow, no one said thank you and I just spent my whole day doing this for you and you don't even care. The things I'm telling myself are going to um, impact those feelings I feel and how those levels of anger and resentment are going to start stacking up. So noticing um, and being able to have a space where you feel heard and validated. Um, Something I didn't mention earlier that I think can be really helpful that adds to this is the antidote to anger is validation. If you want to fuel the fire of someone who's angry, invalidate them. Right. So if someone says, man, I'm so angry that I didn't get the job and someone's like, well, yeah, you weren't really qualified. You didn't really deserve it. There's another one. It's no big deal. You're probably going to feel more upset or or tend to lean into a little bit of sadness Um, versus if someone says, yeah, that really sucks because you didn't deserve to be treated like that or you definitely should have gotten a second interview for that job immediately helps relieve those feelings of anger. So not only externally is it nice to have that validation, but internally to validate ourselves in that way, I think um, can be really, really helpful. Um, So learning that narrative and learning how to respond to that narrative in effective ways, CBT can definitely help with that. Again, CBT is not always the best fit for everyone in their specific situation. I think it can be a great place to start. It's a really solid sort of general base for everyone, especially if it's just... Um, you're struggling a little bit with how to manage emotions and learning emotional literacy and things like that. And it could be a great, great place to start as far as figuring out kind of where to go or where to find those resources or people. Honestly, the first resource that comes to mind, just because it's a literal filtering system for providers is psychology today. um, A place where you can find a provider, indicate what you're looking for down to gender, ethnicity, Um, specialties and otherwise, and then it can tell you who's in your area. I wish there it would be. I would love to see like a matrix of all kinds of um, therapeutic approaches, evidence-based and how they, you know, if I would, I would love to see take this quiz and figure out which approach you need. Like that would be amazing. I'd love to see resources like that. And I hope we're, we're headed in that direction where some of these things are more accessible and more easy to figure out, especially folks trying to navigate for the first time. Um, I would love to see that. But I think Google can be a great place to start. Again, as long as you're taking heed to where that resource is coming from, um, I think that can be helpful. And even connecting with friends or people you know and saying, hey, I want to talk to you about this. What worked for you? I'm thinking about this. What's your experience been like? And getting some of those referrals from friends um, can be helpful as well. Or other supports
0: yeah that's awesome I uh, think I've referred like 10 people to my therapist or my previous therapist um, there you go uh, I'm that's curious good. yeah <laughs> she's awesome I moved nice. to the states so I can't see her anymore mm. but everyone in California I'm like oh yeah um, <laughs> uh, I'm curious with Cerebral how it works when someone signs up for Cerebral do you get matched just with like the first available therapist or how does that matching process works I know we just talked mm-hmm. about like it'd be great if there was a quiz that said this is the best kind of therapy for you um what's exactly. it like sort of in cerebral land?
1: Yeah, so when you sign up for Cerebral, um, you are matched with folks in your state, as you just mentioned, um, you per licensing guidelines, you can only see folks that are licensed in the state in which you reside or are currently located. So you will be um, put into a, a bucket with all the therapists in your state and then you get to choose, as I just mentioned as well. Um, what specialties are you looking for? Um do you have gender or ethnic um, preferences, um, gender preferences, anything like that? Um, I think I just said that. <laughs> um, but um, and then it will filter you for folks that are um, available to take on new clients in your in your state. Um, and then you can. Um, set up an appointment with them and then again um, once you get in with them if it turns out maybe they're not the best fit uh, personality wise or approach wise you can let them know and um, they can definitely get you transferred over to someone else in your state that has similar availabilities and specialties so
0: yeah that's awesome i know i'm taking us a little bit down a of rabbit hole here but um occasionally i've you know emailed a, a therapist and they are like yeah i can see you in two months um which feels kind of discouraging when you're like, I have something I really want to talk about right now. And hopefully I haven't just set this question up for you know disappointment, but I guess it, at Cerebral, how long might you wait to see a therapist after you've signed up?
1: I think at Cerebral, I think I can safely say the maximum you may have to wait would be a matter of days. If that, um, folks usually have pretty immediate availability, um, and I believe our, our algorithm also sets you up to see folks with the availability that you um, prefer and that you're looking for. Um, I don't think they would set you up in a match with someone who didn't have an appointment too far out. So that's something definitely to keep in mind. That's one of the goals that Cerebro had was that more accessible care. So, um, yeah, we're not we're not waiting months or weeks, maybe a matter of days. So,
0: yeah, I love that. Yeah, I've definitely ended up mm-hmm. not seeing those therapists because I'm like, I need help sooner or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, I've had folks that I've seen on the platform that said, I just signed up today and you had an appointment for later in the day. And and so now I'm seeing you, (laughs) you know, hours (laughs) after I signed up. So.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take us back just a little bit. I just have, you know, one or two more questions, but, um, I, I guess I'm curious about boundary setting. I think for a lot of caregivers, um, there's a, I think these feelings come from, and I'm just sort of hypothesizing here, but, um, because they feel like their life's on hold, or they, you know, are resentful towards a sibling who lives in a different state and doesn't have to be, you know, living with mom, or you know, any number of reasons. But I guess, um, can you just talk a little bit about boundary setting and, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: like, why it's important and how you set boundaries with other people? I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, you hear that word and you just think people are saying no around the world, but um, how how can people do this effectively?
1: So um, boundary setting is and and can be complicated because it's a little bit complex. In order to set a boundary, we have to take a couple steps back first in the process. And the first step is mattering. It's what I like to call mattering. We have to believe and understand that we matter no more, no less than anyone else. Um, And sometimes I think, especially in an environment of caregiving, There tends to be that uneven balance of, well, this person clearly matters more. They're getting more attention. They're getting more of my time. I didn't even get to sit down and eat lunch, right? But understanding that as a caregiver, you matter no less than the person you're caregiving for, there's just a difference in and I would say broadly, independence, right? Um, I can do those ADLs a little bit more um, independently than someone else can. But our our differences in mattering are, are no different. When I get to a place of mattering, then I'm able to set up a boundary. And the way I like to explain this to my clients as well is because we don't put boundaries up around things that don't matter, right? So we think about physical boundaries, like a fence or locking a door, locking a car. We don't do that for things that don't matter like we don't lock things up that we don't care about right we don't put a boundary around it so if i care about myself and i understand that i still continue to matter then i can set that boundary um because the struggle for most folks comes in when we attempt to set a boundary but we don't believe we matter as much, it's hard to reinforce it. So if we say, hey, please don't do that. And the person says, no, I'm really, I'm gonna do that. Um, if I don't believe that I matter, we'll say, okay, what you want matters more than what I want. And I'm just, sorry, I have said anything, right? So when we do have that solid foundation of mattering, it makes setting boundaries, um, I wouldn't say easier, but to reinforce and to really say, I mean this, and I'm gonna show you, cause I'm gonna follow through. Um, I think it makes it a lot more effective. Um, less likely to sort of crumble or backtrack in that way. So it can definitely be um, a very hard road to go down in getting to a place where I feel comfortable or I feel ready and able to set boundaries that I'm willing to reinforce um, just because there are some layers to it.
0: Yeah, I really love that analogy of, um, you know, putting a fence around your property or locking your door. I think that mm-hmm. uh, really helps sort of yeah frame what a boundary can look like on a personal level. So- Normally, to round up these conversations, we like to ask, uh, you know, if someone has a top tip yeah. for caregivers, but um, just given the nature of this conversation, I'd love instead to ask, um, you know, what do you wish more people knew about therapy or the benefits of therapy? Like just parting words for... Yeah, that's a great question. This.
1: I think what I, what I wish more people knew about therapy is, um, I, I want to put this succinctly, I guess, um, that you get to participate and ask to have your needs met just as much as the therapist gets to participate. I think sometimes there's this idea that if they're the professional or they're the doctor or whoever, they get to run the show and they're gonna tell you what to do and you just have to listen and comply and everything will be better. And perhaps in maybe modern medicine in a physical health setting, it works that way. I come in, I tell you the problem, the doctor tells me what to do and I do it and I get better. in therapy, your participation is vital. Um, What you think, if something is working, if it's not working, your feedback, your thoughts, how you feel is really important to making sure that that collaborative therapeutic process really serves its purpose and you can get to your goals. Um, so I just, I don't want people to be afraid to, to say how they're feeling or to to talk to their therapist. Yeah, I think sometimes it can take a long time uh, for that therapeutic rapport to build, right? Like I meet with someone for six or nine months and I feel really comfortable with my therapist. Um, but sometimes at first we feel a little bit hesitant and I just want folks to feel empowered to know that um, it's important to to participate and, and say what you feel and say what you think.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's really helpful. Um for people to know to uh, you know given what you just said sort of this traditional relationship between you and someone in authority like say a you mm. know medical doctor um, i think yeah you, people approach therapy sort of with the same understanding and so it, it's useful to hear from a therapist that it's okay to participate in your care in that way absolutely um, if people want to find more about you or and or cerebral online where can they find you
1: yeah, Cerebral.com is where all the info about Cerebral is housed. Um, if you Google my name, Jess Quinlan with Cerebral, my bio will pop up. Um, so you can see some more info um, about me there.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, we'll be sure obviously to to link uh, Cerebral in all the all the links sure. everywhere. Um, and thank you so much for this conversation. I think it was very insightful yeah. Um. Yeah. and helpful for people because this is mm-hmm. not an uncommon thing that people are struggling with as caregivers. So yeah. thank you so
1: much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for great questions, Katie. I appreciate it. That's it from this episode of the Cost of Caring podcast presented by Givers. See you next time.